going to be looking at the second of Jesus' two ordinances. The first one is communion. I mean, the first one is baptism, rather. We're going to be looking at the second one, which is communion. Uh, In baptism, which we looked at two weeks ago, what we're doing is we're proclaiming and celebrating the salvation that we have received in Christ. Uh, We are um, both symbolically and really reenacting with our bodies what has happened in our hearts. Uh, By faith, we in our old lives of sin and its consequence of death are symbolically and, 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 and experientially put to death as we go under the water. You know, we experience the salvation that we have already received. We, there's, a, there's something that happens within our own souls as we are baptized where we go, this is what has happened to me. And we feel it. Um, as we go under the water, our sins and our old life are buried with Christ. And then as we come out of the water, we are raised to newness of life. Just as Christ is raised, to, raised up to new life, so we also who, are, who have put our trust in Jesus Christ are raised to new life. That's what we're doing with baptism. Uh, what we're doing in communion is celebrating and reenacting certain aspects of our salvation and remembering what Christ has accomplished for us. Now, I could easily spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about our salvation and different aspects of what Christ has done for us in it. In fact, I did so a couple of years ago, and if you want to dig in the archives, you can, all right? Um, but this morning, what I want to do is focus on just three aspects of our salvation and how we celebrate them through communion. And then we'll be taking communion together with what I hope will be an enhanced understanding of what, what it is that we're doing as we celebrate communion together. So uh, I've got probably three hours of content I'm going to try and cover in about 30 minutes. So, um, so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go over to Exodus chapter 12. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and then follow along here as I read, or it'll be on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible uh, with you this morning. So uh, this is what the Word of God says. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down 
all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, and kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. People of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked, and thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they had been thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Uh, Those verses are the historical record of the first celebration of the Passover. It was the night when the tenth plague fell, and God brought the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt after 430 years under the slave master's lash. 430 years. Think about that. 430 years gets you back before Plymouth Rock. 430 years. And in case you don't know, the night that Jesus was betrayed was the night when Jesus and his disciples were celebrating a Passover celebration. And at the end of the meal, Jesus took some unleavened bread and the cup, and he celebrated communion for the first time with his disciples and commanded them to do the same for all generations until he returns. And it's highly, highly significant that Jesus institutes communion in connection with Passover because I think that he intends for us to understand his death on our behalf as fulfillment of Passover. You read in this chapter here, at this section that we read, of Moses' command to select the lamb for slaughter. 
And I, I didn't read this, the earlier verses that go into this, but what happens uh, before that is that God gives actually an original command, and He says, I want you to take a lamb, a male without defect, from your herds, either from the goats or from the sheep, a male, a perfect one, a year old, and I want you to, in other words, in the prime of adulthood, and I want you to take that Lamb, and I want you to take it into your house and examine it for four days. Interestingly, Jesus had been in Jerusalem for four days, being examined and questioned by all of the religious leaders. And that night of Passover, when he after he celebrates with the disciples, he's going to be grabbed by those religious leaders. And they're going to put him on trial. In fact, he's going to have several trials before the religious leaders and before Pilate and before Herod. And then back to Pilate again, who's going to condemn him to death. And in every case, he's going to be found what? Innocent. And nevertheless, condemned. He's going to be found innocent and yet condemned. He's going to be like the Passover lamb without spot and without blemish and therefore a worthy sacrifice for the sins of the people. And just as at the original Passover, the destroyer brings death, to every firstborn not covered by the blood of the Lamb. We have a better fulfillment than that. Because here what's going to happen is that God is going to sacrifice His firstborn as the Lamb. And what will happen then is that those who are marked by the blood of the perfect Lamb of God will have the destroyer, not just for one night, but forever and ever and ever pass over them. Instead of God saying, if you're not covered by the blood, I will put to death your firstborn. God says, since you are not covered by the blood, I will put to death my firstborn. That your sins might be covered and that your death might be taken in the death of my son. Amazing that we have a God that does that. And just as the death of the firstborn and the slaughter of the lamb brought freedom from slavery and death to God's people in the days of the Exodus, so also Jesus' death as the lamb of God has brought freedom from slavery to sin and its death penalty for us. Amen? Amen. This is part of what we are celebrating when we take communion. That we are the people who are marked by the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, death no longer has mastery over us. Therefore, sin no longer has to reign in our bodies anymore because we have gotten ourselves free and we have a new master, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. If this does not excite you, you are asleep. Okay, I am serious. This is some of the best stuff in your Bible. This is amazing. 
that God is that good and that gracious. That instead of putting to death people who eminently and richly deserve it, He put to death His Son who did not deserve it. That we, through His sacrifice, might be set free to love and serve Him. And I think it's amazing. Now, uh, not, it was not just a sacrifice. We were also celebrating the final sacrifice for sin. So if you've got your Bible again, flip over to your New Testament now to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 28. We're going to jump in at the end of chapter 9. There's some more we could do there, but we don't have time, so... At the end of chapter 9, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now we are jumping into Hebrews in the middle of a long section, but the point the writer of Hebrews is making here in chapter 9 is that Jesus Christ is both, the, is both superior to and the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system in general, and in particular the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, which is I think coming up or just, just happened. Uh, Yom Kippur uh, is a significant day, probably the most significant day in the Jewish calendar. It's the day when the priest would offer first a bull for his own sins, which he had to name publicly as he put his hands on that animal. And then he would take a goat and he would name publicly the sins of all of the people that had been confessed over the prior year. And laying his hands on that goat, and he would slit the throat of those animals and collect the blood and go once a year into the Holy of Holies and pour that blood on top of the the mercy seat, on top of the ark, underneath the two cherubim that were built on top of it. And the idea was that those two angels that sat on top of that would be looking down, seeing inside the box, which had objects inside that represented the sin of the people. And they would look down, and they would be on every other day of the year, seeing the sin of the people and a holiness of God offended. But then they would see the blood covering the top of that. And they would know that sin has been covered for one more year. And the writer of Hebrews says these things, these, these, the altar and the laver and the, the tabernacle and the temple and the, uh, the table of showbread and the lampstand and the altar of incense and all of these things, they were just copies. They weren't the real thing. But Jesus Christ, on the day He was crucified died and and with his own blood enters into the real place of which 
these things were only a copy and a shadow. He entered into the very presence of God with his own blood and said, sin is now covered not once, not every year, but once and for all. For all men, all women, all boys, all girls, all sin for all time. It's not a temporary offering. And so when we celebrate communion, what we're doing, contra Roman Catholicism, which says that Christ is a sacrifice every time you take the Mass, if you grew up Roman Catholic, that's what they believe. That's why in all Roman Catholic churches, they put Christ on the cross in the sanctuary. Why? Because they believe that every time they celebrate the Mass, they are re-sacrificing Jesus again in an unbloody sacrifice to cover the sins since the last time you were there and took the Mass. But Hebrews says, one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time. And I'm going to go with that. And the cross in our church doesn't have Jesus on it because He is not being re-sacrificed when we celebrate. What we are doing as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, as Paul says, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Because we are remembering and participating with our bodies in a celebration of the forgiveness we have received in our souls. When we take communion, we are reminding ourselves that we are the lost sheep who have been found by the Good Shepherd, who laid down His life for us, and whose blood still covers us on a daily basis for every sin that we have committed, every sin we will commit, because His death is the final sacrifice. And where these have been Covered, there is no longer a need for a sacrifice on an ongoing basis for sin. Amen? And communion is also, according to the Scriptures, the entry. It's the celebration of our entry into the new covenant and the new community that is formed by it. So flip over a page or two uh, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 to 25. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body, bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Prior to Jesus, under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, the priest offered daily sacrifices for sin. They had to sacrifice daily because the sacrifice they offered couldn't take away sin. It only pointed forward to the one who ultimately would come and ultimately would finally and completely take away sin. And by the way, they never sat down. That's why the writer of Hebrews says they, every day they offer they stand and offer sacrifice. Do you know, how, you know how you know if you have an unrighteous priest? There's one example of this in the whole Old Testament. A guy named Eli. Eli is an unrighteous priest, and he is replaced by Samuel. You know how you know he's an unrighteous priest? Because two things. Number one, he was supposed to never let the lamp go out in the tabernacle. And when God comes and speaks to Samuel, he, it says that as Samuel and Eli are in the tabernacle sleeping, it says it was, it was early in the night and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Something has gone wrong. And then when Eli gets the news that his sons have been killed, he falls backward in his chair, which he is not supposed to have at the tabernacle. And because he's a great big guy, the fall kills him, breaks his neck. But the righteous priest was supposed to stand and the reason he stood was because his work was never finished, therefore he could never rest. In contrast to that, when Jesus ascended, the Scripture says, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why could he do that? Because his work was done. You know, when, when I, when I, the, the, uh, the, probably the unfavorite task at my house is uh, cutting grass. I actually don't mind cutting grass, but I have some children who aren't big fans. And, and we're always like, come in, get some water if you need to, and then get your hind end outside and finish the yard, right? You can sit when the job is done. When Jesus' job was done, he sat down at the right hand of God. And his sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is uh, something that gives us complete cleansing from our sinful hearts and sinful flesh. And we have inaugurated not an old covenant that requires uh, animal sacrifice, but we are enjoying a new covenant. That's why he quotes here Jeremiah chapter 31 and the promises that God made through Jeremiah that one day there would be a new covenant that would come. 
Hebrews says, this is it. Jesus established it. And just as every covenant was sealed in blood, it was sealed in the blood of Jesus. And he inaugurated it. It's why that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he gave them the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do in remembrance of me. In other words, he didn't want them to miss it. In case you were looking for the fulfillment of Jeremiah, this is it. I'm it. I'm the sacrifice that inaugurates the new covenant. And on top of that, not only do we enter into the new covenant, we also are not saved by ourselves. We are saved into a new covenant community. We are brought into a new people of God. The old covenant people of God, by and large, rejected their own Messiah. And so Jesus came and he offers, at, beginning at Pentecost, to you and me to be the new covenant people of God. And it's not a responsibility that we should take lightly. And also being part of it uh, is something we ought to Uh, take seriously. Amen? That's why he says, let us consider, your Bible may read as mine does, stir one another up. But the word is spur. Anybody have horses? Know what a spur is? Spur is uncomfortable. Amen? Right? So in other words, is every interaction between us going to be comfortable? No. No. Okay. In fact, sometimes there's going to be people who apply the spur to you in ways that are difficult, right? But the objective is not that we just, you know, take delight in whacking each other, but that we might be stirred up toward love and good deeds, right? And that we also not neglect meeting together, as some people get in the habit of doing. Even in the New Testament, they were talking about that, right? Uh, I noticed that when you don't come to church, it's easy to get in the habit of not coming to church, right? And then on top of that, um, you begin to wander off, not only from the people of God, but from God Himself. Because you are saved, not by yourself, but into a community that you're part of. Amen? Uh, And when we take communion, what we're doing is we're celebrating the fact that we can enter into God's presence guiltless. Our sin is paid, and we have been made holy, and we are being made holy day by day. And we can therefore gather as the people of God around the Lord's table and fellowship with Him and with one another. So bottom line, here's what communion is about. It's about celebrating our redemption from our sin. It's about receiving atonement for our sin and our entry into new covenant community. And that leads me to two things that I want to make sure that we understand before we celebrate communion together. Number one is, first of all, a question. Can you join in the celebration? Can you see that one, Sarah? If not, go to the next slide. They're both on there. They're not both on there. Okay. All right. Technical difficulties are going to whack us all. All right. 
Uh, first of all, can you join in the celebration? And the answer to the question is this. It's very simple. Only if you know Christ. Taking communion is not magic. As Christians, we do not believe in magic. We do not do incantations and, and rituals uh, that somehow um, do magical things to you. Uh, taking communion does not make you a Christian. It does not forgive your sins and make you right with God. It does not benefit you in any way, in fact, if you are not a Christian. In fact, the Bible says the reverse is true. Uh, it says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, anyone who eats and drinks in an unworthy way eats and drinks God's judgment on himself. Uh, and that is not our desire for anyone to experience. And it isn't God's desire either that you would experience his judgment. In fact, he sent Jesus to the cross specifically to secure your redemption from sin and your atonement so that you could be in relationship with him and be totally clean from everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do and so that you could become more and more like Jesus every day as you obey him by the Holy Spirit who he sends to live within you. And what you need to do today, if you have never come into a relationship with God, is to put your trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins in your place and was raised from the dead to give you new life. What you do is you transfer your trust, right now even as I'm speaking, from your own self and your own ideas, and you place it fully on Jesus. And then after that, you get to enjoy with the rest of us the celebration of those who have been healed by Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, if you do know Christ, Sarah, just go ahead and shut that down. I don't think it's going to come back here. Uh, if you do know Christ, then First of all, confess your sins, receive Christ's forgiveness, and enjoy renewed fellowship with Him. Uh, one thing that I love about communion, and one reason why I wish we celebrated communion every week, is that every time we do celebrate it, it is a wonderful reminder of God's grace to us. Every time I eat the bread and I drink the cup, what I am doing is reminding myself that Christ's body was broken so mine could be renewed and resurrected. And His blood was spilled so that my eternal destiny could be one of life rather than death. Now this morning, before you take communion as a believer, I would encourage you to do the following things. Uh, first, you might pray like David. Search me and know me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Just pray that out, you know, not out loud necessarily, although you can. But in your own heart, say, God, I know I am blind to my sin. And I don't always see it, even when it's obvious to you. I pray you'd make it obvious to me that I might confess and be healed. 
And then take the time just to confess specifically what it is that he brings to mind. I heard John Ortberg say this one time. It was a, it's a good line, and I like it because it's very true. He said, you know, one time when you say to God, I lied when I, and, and said that I was working when I wasn't because I wanted to avoid getting in trouble with my boss is worth a thousand variations of I haven't been honest enough. And that's true. To actually admit before the Lord in specific what it is that you have done is deeply healing to your soul. And you do receive cleansing and forgiveness at that very moment. And then take communion. If you've got any sins to confess, confess them and then take communion and enjoy renewed fellowship with Christ. Because we are gathered ultimately at His table. And as our Lord, He is ultimately the host at the meal. So after you confess your sin, come to the table and receive the elements from His hand who is welcoming you and reminding you that your sins are covered by the sacrifice that He made once and for all. You remember end of John, John chapter 20? Peter has said, well Jesus, even if everybody else denies you, I never will. I'll go with you to the end, man. I'm, I got your back. I'm on your six. You know, I got you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the cock crows tonight, you will deny three times that you even know me. And that happened? Yeah. And when the cock crowed, Peter went out into the night and wept bitterly. John chapter 20, though, Jesus is on the beach and all the guys are out fishing. And they, he calls out to them and he says to them, throw the net on the other side. You'll catch more fish that way. And Peter immediately remembers somebody who has told him that before. And he knows it's the Lord. He jumps into the water and swims to the beach. And there he is dripping. And Jesus has breakfast made. He's got fish cooking on the fire. And he says to him three times, Peter, do you love me more than these? In other words, do you love me more than all the rest do, Peter? Really? And it's at the third time Peter's soul is crushed. But he is also restored as he confesses his sin. And it's interesting, he is restored in the context of a meal. Amen? This is what we're doing. This is a meal that we celebrate before the Lord because you know what? Whenever we sin, we betray the Lord who bought us. And then when we come to the table, we confess our sin and we fellowship again with Him in a meal. Reminds us that our sin is paid and our future is secure, and we have a home in glory alongside the Lord. Amen.
So those who are going to help us, if you'd come down.